Hello and welcome to The Tradecast. I'm Hayley McDowell and I'm joined today by online editor of The Trade, John Bakey. Hello. And uh, editor of The Trade Derivatives, Joe Parsons. Howdy. And unfortunately, managing editor John Watkins cannot make it today, so it's just three of us. Uh, how are you guys? Good. Yourself? Not bad. Wait for the snow to, to come down. Yeah. Really. Thunder snow. Thunder snow. It looks like rain. Yeah, we'll feels see. like rain. Yeah, we'll strange snow. Um, okay, so big news week. Uh, we've had quite a lot of stories this week, big news. Um, John, do you want to take us through a couple of those? Sure. So uh, starting off, there's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of naughty boys getting in trouble. Um, well, former, what else is new? <laughs> indeed. Three former FX traders uh, at uh, banks, which include JP Morgan, Barclays and City, have uh, been charged with uh, fixing prices in the FX market by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, these guys are alleged to have manipulated exchange rates for potentially hundreds of billions of dollars that have been traded on the FX markets between 2007 and 2013. Um, uh, Obviously, as we know, those banks have already uh, received combined fines of $2.5 billion in the US uh, for their role in, in fixing spot trades. Um, I guess we'll just see where this case goes from here and, uh, and whether anybody anybody goes to jail for uh, those particular offences. I will say about that as well, um, interestingly, uh, once that was published, I got an email from, uh, I think it was Chris Ashton, who was the former head of FX uh, Spot. His lawyer, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, so she emailed me and she uh, left a comment saying that he was never given any legal advice, guidance or instruction by Barclays into, in relation to US law. Um, and she's basically saying that they don't have enough evidence to prosecute. So I'm quite intrigued to see how this is going to go. So it's just the regulators trying to flex their muscles, you think? Yeah, yeah. That's what I think. But she reckons that they don't have enough evidence, okay. interestingly enough. Well, well, we'll find out soon enough, I'm sure. Um, the Candrium Investors Group, uh, I'm sure you all know uh, those guys there very well. Fabiana Rev, uh, obviously, a uh, good friend of the of the trade. Um, and was uh, the Candrium Group was awarded Multi Asset Desk of the Year uh, at, at yeah. Leaders in Trading, <laughs> which is the, the premier uh, trading awards event in, in Europe. So, it truly is. Uh, <laughs> Club of the week. They, they received that award. Um, they're opening a, an office in the US so they can reach out to US institutional investors, um, uh, offering their fixed income strategies, sustainable, responsible investments, and that sort of stuff. Um, Noisy is uh, going to be expanding floor trading for all U.S. securities, U.S. securities, including Nasdaq symbols. Um, this is uh, just sort of most recent announcement from its parent company, ICE, to uh, offer a sort of wide range of, of trading facilities to clients. And then, lastly, uh, several banks um, have teamed up with a fintech firm called Origin to launch. Uh, Another electronic trading platform in the bond market, uh, this one focused on private placement bonds, which uh, the market's supposed to be worth apparently 1 trillion euros. And it's BNP Paribas, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, SocGen, and uh, Credit Suisse that are uh, included in that particular project, which is uh, in its beta phase at the moment. Um, and uh, they said that uh, they want simple issuance in the medium term, no private placement market. Uh, by acting as a central source of information, allow 
dealers to receive targeted funding levels from issuers. Um, actually, that kind of leads on nicely to... It does. Uh, ...something that I wrote earlier this week. Um, I will say, actually, anything on bond platforms, any kind of launch of bond platforms, they're always really well read. And I think it is because there are so many. So this week... Well, I um, think it's because everyone wants something to work. Yeah. <laughs> There's many issues, isn't it? Yeah, there? yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's a market that people people want to trade, but it's really, really difficult right now. So yeah. I think I think there are you know, people are always going to be interested to find out well what's what's the next idea, what's the next phase to kind of kickstart the bond market and get yeah. it moving again. Yeah. And you know we have seen some uh, successful projects around, but uh, the sort of general feeling is that they alone are not enough no. to cope with the loss of bank liquidity. Yeah, um, so I saw a uh, blog post by John Greenan, who is a front office trading technology consultant, and he actually tallied up the amount of uh, bond platforms in the market, and he totaled 128, uh, which seems just ridiculous. Um, I remember back in June, when I was at the Fixed Income Leaders Summit in Boston, um, they tallied up the amount there, and it was at 98, so... I mean, it's so quite, it's growing quite yeah, quickly. <laughs> it's growing quickly, um, but obviously this is a it's a major issue um, because obviously market participants are saying that this increase in venues is causing fragmentation. It's and you know liquidity droughts and uh, in global bond markets. And I mean, time after time, every time you you, you mention bond markets, fixed income, it's just it sounds like it's a bit of a train wreck. To be honest, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, though, isn't it? Is yeah. like, is, is there no liquidity because there's loads of bond platforms are fragmentizing it, or is there no liquidity and thus a huge number of people have tried to come up with the winning solution in that yeah. market? You know, mm-hmm. it's probably a little bit of both. Um, can 128 different platforms survive? Probably not, absolutely not. <laughs> um, Maybe that'll be some news later on this year. A couple of we'll uh, see consolidation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Inev- inevitably that number's got to drop eventually. Yeah. I suppose when is the real question. I thought it might have done already. Yeah. But obviously it hasn't. I also <laughs> and, thought it would have dropped by now. Uh, yeah. Uh, obviously it hasn't. So evidently some people are out there that, that can get the capital behind them to yeah. to come up with new things and you know some of them might be good but for the buy side it's very confusing mm-hmm. you know how do you choose because there's always going to be some cost involved in, in adopting any new platform how do you know that you're choosing the right one yeah. um, and for some of the bigger more established guys they can probably quite easily convince people to, to sign up but when you're a small player you're new to this market yeah. um, it's going to be a lot more difficult and you're competing against, you know, the liquid nets, market access, trade webs, like those kind of yeah, exactly. The yeah, well-established yeah. people yeah. are probably already connected to liquid nets, so connecting to their bond platform is a yeah, it's not a, a not a huge leap. Same with you know, they've already got a Bloomberg terminal. Mm-hmm. So trading with Bloomberg not a not a huge leap, but going for something completely new, and it might be absolutely amazing what's being offered, but it's there is always a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other news, Joe. Uh, Timothy Massad, the chair of the CFTC, he uh, gave his final speech, I believe it was, before yeah. his departure. Yeah, so uh, he was in uh, London this week, um, giving his views on some of the, sort of the global regulation and uh, some of the main issues going on. And, and um, he raised, well, what everyone else has been talking about pretty much is, is 
the future of uh, Euro denominator clearing um, in a sort of post Brexit world, really. So as we know, pretty much the predominant amount of of uh, Euro clearing is done in London. Um, also, a lot of sort of US dollar clearing is done in London as well. So um, everyone wants to know what's going to happen once sort of Article Fifty is done and, and, and we are fully out of the, the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've seen plenty of articles where some of the big sort of European policymakers want the Euro clearing to go to Paris or Frankfurt or Amsterdam, um, either one of those. But again, there will be some sort of form of equivalence um, that will be granted to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest clearing houses are based in London here anyway. CME got one nice. LCH. Um, so it, it'd be interesting to see how those clearinghouses in London will get access to Europe if there's you know a, a hard Brexit, mm. there's tougher rules there. Um, but I think what the most interesting case is is um, is whether Euroclear will go after the states because yeah. they've got those. They've LCH already got. You know, a huge clearinghouse in in the, in the US, so mm. CME, um, and they've all they've all got the infrastructure uh, that can facilitate this just as easily in the UK. Mm. Um, isn't isn't the bigger risk though not that it's necessarily would move from the UK to the US, but that if the, if the decision was taken that it shouldn't be in the UK. Then it just gravitates to the US anyway, instead of what some people are hoping, which is that it'll end up in Germany or you know it'll end up in Paris, yeah, etc. And it, you know, it actually it may not end up there at all. You know, they may think, oh, finally, this is our chance to take London down a peg or two. And the reality is, well, actually, it's just going to be. I mean, I, I think you know, in my personal opinion, Paris, perhaps not. Frankfurt's a possibility. Frankfurt's possibly. I would. I would reckon Amsterdam is probably the. Best okay. Shout. Yeah. Could be. They've got some of the, you know the some of the Europe's well Europe's biggest pension funds are pretty much all in in Holland, um, as well as you know they've got some of the big prop trading firms mm. there and asset managers. So I wouldn't be surprised if you know some of the other clearinghouses here start looking at Amsterdam as a base. I mean, ICE have really got ICE have got a, an Amsterdam-based clearinghouse there already. Um, and I, I, I'm not too sure about some of the other ones, but I, I, well, I think that could be a possibility if okay. if something happens uh, in London. Interesting. Um, cool, uh, John. Yeah. You wrote a very interesting feature. It's been very well read uh, about buy siders leaving the industry. Yeah, this has kicked up a bit of a storm online yeah. actually in the last 24 hours. Uh, basically. We received um, a note from a contact uh, basically pointing out that quite a lot, 20, we've got lists on the article, I'm sure there's many more, uh, but 20 that, that we definitely know of. At least 20. Um, yeah, at least 20. Uh, so big, senior, well-known buy-side guys who have left their firms, some have left the industry, some we know have retired, um, and others we're not too sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe moved on to other firms, maybe moved on to other... Uh, parts of financial services uh, but the key message really was there seems to be a sort of mass exodus going on especially very much at, at the top of the business um, I spoke to a few a few sort of uh, buy-siders gave me a bit of a um, 
uh, whisper in my ear about some of the reasons that might be happening. Regulation was, of course, one of the one of the big issues in the fact that you know this market's kind of changed so much, it's moved so much. There's so much more responsibility yeah. being placed on the buy side desk, and the actual role of the buy side trader has changed massively over the last twenty years as a result of that. Uh, and for many people, they probably just think, "Do I want to do this anymore?" Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sort of come towards the end of my career. Maybe I'd like to. To look at doing, you know, at something else that's related, but you know, isn't quite this job, which doesn't really reflect, yeah. you know, what I did when I came into the industry, uh, which is a completely fair uh, reason. There's a, a similarly been posited that uh, some of the some of the senior uh, management within the asset managers actually forced some people out because they weren't so keen on kind of changing the way that they did things and mm-hmm. uh, having that sort of greater level of oversight, bigger focus on best X, bigger responsibility to end investors and those kind of things um, again, people, yeah yeah people are always resistant to change to some extent yeah, yeah. Um, and also just the, the sort of technological aspect of it it's for you know if you go back to, to the old days sales traders you know being a trader was a relationship game. it was about building relationships building mm-hmm. trust you know having the reliable network of people that you could trade with yeah. uh, and now it's far more about managing a, a technology operation that you know it's like managing your algos, you know, managing all your regulatory um, technology that's going to help you comply, reporting, all those sorts of things. So you know, the job has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. That was very much the key message I heard from the industry. The other thing that's kind of come out since then, that, that, uh, I suppose it's it's contrasting slightly, is it's mostly come from people who are either no longer in asset management or or maybe never have been in asset management, but giving a bit of a, uh, being able to give a bit of an outside view, and that is the fact that, you know, active management is under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, so much more money to go into passive funds, much cheaper to run. Active funds are expensive, and why are they expensive? Well, one of the big reasons is you need a decent trading operation, um, and so, you know, that costs a lot, especially many of the people on this list. No doubt they would have had uh, very healthy salaries and. and bonus packages and such and if you don't need to hire them if they may be superfluous to your needs Mm -hmm. then you might well just go well we need to cut costs Um, and so we need to get rid of them and you know I guess that's why we've seen things like like concepts like the outsourced trading desk kind of move up the agenda because yeah if it is so expensive to run your own trading desk why would you not just go well I'll just outsource it because you know, a lot of people, it's, it's particularly um, if they're less well informed on the difference that, that best execution potentially can make, mm-hmm. they'll just see the trading desk purely as a cost, um, and, and, and not and not necessarily consider, you know, other other issues like smart beta and things like that, where the trading desk actually can contribute to improving your investment return, yeah. um, and certainly with you know the sort of additional regulatory pressures are being piled on as well. It is it is very much being seen as a cost centre. Uh, I suppose for you know those guys who want to who believe in in active management, believe in the role of the the independent trading desk and the asset manager. In the future, if they want to kind of be able to justify what they're doing, they're really going to have to work hard to demonstrate that they're adding real value yeah. to the investment process and that ultimately they're delivering a benefit to the end investor. Because yeah. that's what matters at the end of the day. If you don't make a good return, your end investor's not happy, your business doesn't do well, and they go, what cost can I cut? Oh, the trading desk. 
I mean, another sort of trend um, coming from that is obviously as the trading desk is shrinking, you've got this fintech bubble getting bigger and bigger. Mm. And I mean, I know that we've covered a lot of stories in the past sort of six months, maybe longer, of you know buy siders and uh, sell siders leaving the industry and going into fintech. So it's kind of like that. Is that going to carry on? Is fintech almost going to take over? Is it going to be like that whole that whole thing rather than for, for some? I think that that might work, um, but you got to think about the. The difference in skill set. The, the, I guess kind of what this is saying is that some of those guys, those older guys, the skill set they have and the skill set that's needed for the training desk today, which is not dissimilar from what the fintechs might want as well now, they don't match up. Right. So can those guys actually move in? Maybe they can within a slightly different kind of role, like a sales role, you know, that sort of thing. But to, you know, they probably don't have necessarily that sort of high-level technical expertise. Mm-hmm technology expertise would but they will have the market structure knowledge potentially yeah. which could be useful yeah of so it's a uh, so rising stars game as well and speaking of indeed. rising stars yes rising one, of our, stars. one of our other premier events coming up later this year is yeah. the rising stars and trading execution so yeah. be on the lookout for that yeah yeah um, and I guess that's the uh, the next gen of traders who are going to be um, rising up to replace many of our, uh, our top names that have left the industry um, and that's uh, you know an event that uh, we're happy to start receiving submissions for now. Uh, please visit our, visit our website, find our contact details, and and, uh, and email us if you've got any nominations. Uh, anybody you work with, who or maybe even yourself, who you think is a rising star in the industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, brilliant. Sounds good. Okay, that's all we've got time for. Um, thanks, guys. Hopefully Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully, it doesn't snow. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Okay. <laughs> Um, thanks a lot and uh, tune in next week.